0: I mean, I was a really low-bottom drunk, as I say. I didn't have any friends when I got sober. One of my family members was speaking to me. I didn't have a job. I had married this guy I'd only known for a couple of weeks. My life was in shambles. And then I get sober, and there's this whole other life out there. And it's really rich for the taken.
1: I heard it through the grapevine.
2: Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour
0: Variety
2: Hour featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Howdy, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California.
2: Hiya, Sam.
1: What's not happening?
2: Did you ever see your alcoholism from the pain? That you were causing other loved ones while you were drinking? Absolutely not. I mean, I, I didn't hurt anybody. Are you kidding? That's what I said when my very first meeting, I came home and told my wife, I don't know. They were talking about making amends. I don't know what this is about. I was always a happy drunk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then you Wrong. found out differently. <laughs>
2: yes. And as I got sober, I began to see, you know, how much I really was affecting the others around me. And, you know, I remember one incident as a father when my son was two years old and I still had I got sober when he was six, mm-hmm. but he was two years old and he had earaches all the time. And I was trying not to be an alcoholic But (laughs) it wasn't going very well. That didn't work. It's controlled drinking. And I was trying to control it every single day. But every single night, I had to start drinking. And I drank every night without fail. I could not wait till at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock when I got off work. That's what I was doing at that time. Mm -hmm. His earaches would come late at night always. He had a real big problem with this. And he just starts screaming in pain, which meant that my wife would go take care of him and she would call me and send me to the 24-hour drugstore to pick up his pain medicine for him. And I would be drunk because I was always drunk at night. I remember one time when he started crying and I was in my studio painting and drinking and drunk. and I thought, oh, no, I can't believe he's doing this to me. I'm gonna have to go drive. I'm gonna get arrested, and I'm gonna get to lose my license over this. And it, it was ugly. And my next thought was, what kind of person are you that this is the way you think when your son is crying in pain? Mm. It was painful to see in myself, but it was plain as day. I mean, and, you know, I was going, I, well, I've got to go get the pain and I don't have a choice. I hope I don't get arrested. And I didn't. When I got sober, I was, remember sharing that with my sponsor and he said, hang on to that.
1: Yeah. And the thing is at the time that wasn't enough to get you sober. No, it wasn't. It wasn't.
2: That's what's the dumbfounding thing about alcoholism, is that I had to drink. No matter the this
1: precious boy that I loved so dearly, that wasn't enough to keep me from drinking. You know, I've got uh, Thanksgiving at my grandmother's house. I was hungover big time. Waited and waited and waited till the last minute to go. And when I got there, I realized I can't do this. And I went inside and I kissed her on the cheek and said, happy Thanksgiving. I got I can't stay and turned right around and left. You know, that was not an unusual occurrence for me to leave early, show up late, not be present while mm. I was there. Right. Because it was either I was hungover or I was looking for the next drink. And then the other thing that popped into my head, something really bad happening, and it still wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. My husband and I were both drinking, we were both drunks. And I had my hands around his neck. Mm. This is a total blackout. The only way I know this is because he told me, but I woke up the next morning, and there was a really painful thing going on with my back. And I asked him what had happened. I had my hands around his throat and he punched me in the stomach and I raked my back down the corner of the counter. And I could have killed this man Mm -hmm. and not even known it and not knowing it was me, but that was not enough for me to stop drinking. So I definitely hurt people that I loved in my drinking days and it still wasn't enough to stop.
2: Right. Right. Thank goodness there's a solution. I mean, I did not want to go to AA, but when I went to AA and I was whipped, I came to AA saying, show me how to do this. I cannot do it anymore. I exhausted every avenue that I could think of besides AA. Oh, yeah. And so I was ready and it worked. And I'm so grateful I don't have to live like that anymore.
1: Doing it someone else's way is the only way that has worked for me. Yeah. It's a better way to live.
2: What's happening today?
1: Today's guest is Vicki C.
2: Sam, how can people send
1: us a question for the old timer? Don, the easiest way to do that is just to pick up the phone and call 212-870-3418 and you record your message. That's 212 870 3418.
0: Hi, everyone. I am Vicki C. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia, and my home group is Indian River 12 Step Study Group.
1: Hey, Vicki, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. I'm
1: glad you're here, Vicky. When did you get sober?
0: I got sober January 22nd, 1990.
2: What was going on with you when you got sober that you decided that you needed to go to AA of all things?
0: Yeah, can you imagine? Um, (laughs) Well, I actually was introduced to AA in uh, 1980 because the state of Maine took my child away from me Mm. in 1980. And the judge said to me, if you want to have any visitation with your child, then you will get sober and recommended a rehab for me in uh, Bodenham, Maine, a really small town. And so I wanted to see my child. So I went to rehab. Were you
2: thinking you had a problem or were you thinking the judge was being very judgy?
0: Oh, very judgy. Although (laughs) I knew that I had a problem. I knew that I was an alcoholic. I didn't care that I was an alcoholic. I didn't want to get sober. I wanted really nothing to do with a sober life, but I wanted to see my daughter. And my only option was to be sober. Uh, But, you know, it's such an insidious disease that I didn't get sober then. Um, You know, I was in that 30-day rehab. I was going to AA meetings, but I didn't want to give up alcohol. Mm. I thought that I could fake it. Since I went to this rehab, I could pretend that I was this other person and could be an effective mother. But, you know, that didn't work.
2: How did that show itself? How did that not work?
0: Oh uh, Well, I was still doing everything that I did before I went to rehab. I lived with a guy that owned a bar in our town. And you know, would go to work. Sometimes I worked in a factory. I would go to work sometimes. Sometimes I wouldn't. And my job actually paid for me to go to this rehab, and so I had to pretend at the job as well that I was sober. And um,
1: wow, and, that's yeah. a lot of work.
0: Oh, <laughs> it was so hard. It was so hard that I didn't even know how hard it was. Like I didn't know that this other kind of life existed. You know, the like. Now, now
1: you hard. were pretty young in all this too, weren't you?
0: Yeah, well, I, um, I picked up my first drink at 10. I had three older brothers and I was one of six children. And we always refer to ourselves as feral children. <laughs> uh-huh. we, we didn't really have any rules or, you, you know, we kind of lived in the country and our parents didn't like children, even though they had six of us. And um, so I drank at 10 with two of my three older brothers 10? At, at 10. And do you know, by, by 13, I was a runaway. By 14, mm. I was pregnant. By 15, I was married for the first time. And so in all this craziness, you know, I had this child when I was 14. I was, I was living on the streets when I got pregnant with her. She was five. I was 20 when uh, the state of Maine took her away from me. But the insidiousness of the alcoholism was that I wanted to drink really more than I wanted to be a mother. You know, truthfully, sadly, that was the case for me. You asked um, what was going on in my life when I turned 30, when I picked up my white ship. I I really, nothing big had happened other than I, I met this guy. I was in a small town in Bath, Maine, and there is a shipyard in that town. So I met this guy and he was in the Navy and he was nine years younger than me. And he was getting ready to come down to Virginia Beach the next month. He was getting transferred. I said, God, I'd love to go to Virginia Beach. What do you think of getting married? To my surprise, he said yes. So I should have known that he was, you know, he was as crazy as I was or a lunatic, (laughs) just like I was. Um, But it was that thing where, you know, if I leave, if I go somewhere else, uh, you know, maybe things will be better.
1: Uh That geographical cure.
0: That's it. Exactly. But wherever you go, you take yourself with you.
2: Wherever you go, there you are. And wherever you are, there you go.
0: That's the truth. (laughs) So I, I got down here in Virginia Beach and my daughter called me. She was 14 at the time.
2: How old were you?
0: I was 30.
2: Did you have contact with her?
0: Off and on, I had contact with her. We lived in a small town in Bath, Maine. So I saw her for the first few years, but my alcoholism got so bad that for several years, you know, we didn't see each other, we would bump into each other occasionally, you know, downtown or something like that. Mm -hmm. So she called me right after I had moved here and done this geographical cure. I thought that I needed to learn how to be a mother. So I, I called the United Way, I had no money, you know, my husband, who I didn't know, was like an E2 or something, you know, in the in the military, and I wasn't working. I called the United Way, I went to this therapist. And wouldn't you know it, she says to me, I'll work with you. If you go down here, there's a meeting tonight at 530 and you pick up a weight chip because I really think your problem is alcoholism. And I was like, oh, you know, I couldn't hide it from her. And I thought I could. And what I learned was in order to be a mother, I had to get sober. You know, just in order to be an active member of any society, this society, I had to get sober. So
2: to be able to get out of myself, I had to get sober to be able to care for someone else.
1: Yeah. The the, the oxygen masks dropping from over the airplane seats. I mean, it really is that thing. you got to put your mask on first before you can be of any help to anyone else. We got to take care of ourselves first. We got to get our lives in order before we can show up for anyone else.
0: Yep. So I um, I picked up a white chip that day, and I started talking at meetings, and this woman said to me, you know, like three meetings, in, she goes, shut your mouth, and do you have a sponsor? <laughs> and I said, wow. I said, no, yeah, and she goes, okay, well, the, I'm going to be your sponsor, and that was terrific. It was terrific, because I was just glommed myself onto her, and I would do anything mm-hmm. she she really wanted me to do. And then for the first time well, ever,
2: Why did that change for you that you were willing to do that and willing to accept this person saying, quit talking, listen in the meetings. This is somebody telling you what to do. What yeah. changed inside of you that made you willing to do it? Because you said you just went because this person said, go to a meeting or I won't work with you.
0: Yeah, that is such an interesting question. I think it must have been it might sound corny, but my higher power doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, because seriously, until that time, uh, you know, my life was always chaotic, it was chaotic from the day I was born, but certainly after I picked up that drink it got worse. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that when I walked into that meeting that day, I had a sense of belonging, which I had never felt before. And I think it was because that seed was planted when I was in rehab all those years ago. You know, the meetings that I went to for several months afterward, I just felt at home, like I had never felt before, when I, rem- I clearly remember when the person read "How it Works," that feeling of like being part of a fellowship. I had never been to a church, I had never belonged to any clubs. I, you know I was an eighth grade dropout in high school, so I never went to any proms or anything like that. But I felt like I belonged, I think, for the first time really, in my life.
2: Oh wow! I, you know, I really—it's not silly at all. That is exactly what uh, my experience of a higher power was at the beginning, which was simply this feeling came over me that I'm going to be okay
1: and I can trust this. I can, and where's that coming from? I didn't do any Do it. <laughs> that sense of connection, you know, it, it, it continues to grow throughout my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was such a lone wolf is what I thought Mm -hmm. (laughs) until I got me drunk enough Mm -hmm. and I was alone. And then I was looking for people. So what it was, was all this barrier of, of the walls I had up around me and fear of connecting with people. And Mm -hmm. when alcohol would drop that, then, you know, I would have whatever connection was available there. But what I have found in these rooms is true connection.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, I know um, listening to people in the rooms when I first got sober, I remember thinking, I want what they have. You know, my sponsor reiterated over and over, well, then you have to do what we did to get mm-hmm. it. It doesn't just come by osmosis. It's, it's hard work, you know? So,
2: and what so what's thing- something that you did mm-hmm. at, at the very beginning there with the sponsor and you're connected to AA for the first time? And you're staying sober?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: What was something that you did that seemed like they were asking you to do that seemed crazy, but you did it anyway and found on the other side, it wasn't crazy at all?
0: Uh, Well, one thing was being willing to listen without debating like I was just I was a very very argumentative person my sponsor used to say you have to resign from the debating society even though I wanted what the people in AA had I still would say yeah but you know I was a low bottom drunk that was my you know that's what I always said. you know well that person has a college education or even a high school education or whatever it was I had to learn how to stop comparing myself out And instead, looking at the things that I had in common with these individuals, because I had always felt like an outsider. And it would have been easy for me to start feeling like an outsider in AA because I had never, like I said, never been to a church or I'd never, you know, sought any, any religious affiliation or any higher power or anything like that. And so I started doing that. Like I considered myself a diehard atheist. If you had my life, you'd be an atheist too, you know, or you'd be an alcoholic too, or insert any, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there, I just became willing to sit and be still and learn how to meditate. And that to me was huge Because it was for the first time, I'm not trying to control myself or the outcome of something or, and I was just willing to listen. You know, I was willing to tell my sponsor about something that I was feeling like I needed to have a job because I had already left this guy that I hadn't married, you know, within a few months and I didn't have a place to live and I was going to be homeless again. And here I am sober, you know, it's like, oh, same old, same old. And my sponsor said, huh how about if you have a little bit of faith that this is going to work out? And I'm like, yeah, but you I don't have a job. I don't have a place to live. That. How about you have a little bit of faith? I had a little bit of faith and you know what happened? I met this girl at, at a party. She was in Al-Anon and she had an open room to rent. So I said, okay, so I, I start renting this room from her. I get a job in human resources at a local bank. Now I'm a person who swears like a sailor. I do not know proper grammar. I didn't know that you had to wear a slip under a skirt. I didn't know anything about working in a professional <laughs> environment. I'd either been a, you know, I'd been a drug dealer or I'd worked in a factory or a bar. Mm-hmm. So it worked out. I got this job. I got this room. I started having a relationship with that daughter. I started financially supporting her. But she did she ended up cutting all contact with me. Mm. It's it's been Um, difficult in that she's using now, like I used to use. Mm. And so we haven't seen each other in several years. Um, But I do have a fantastic relationship with her two sons, who are my grandsons. We're actually putting one of my grandsons through college. And um, the other one, we have a terrific relationship with as well, my husband and I.
2: It's hard to watch someone else go through what I went through.
0: Yes. Yes. How
2: are you doing with that? How do you deal with it?
0: Well, the the thing is, I'm so grateful for the 12 steps and working, working those steps in my life, because, you know, I've done the steps many, many times, um, one through 12 um, throughout the years. And you didn't
2: uh, do it just once and completed and graduated.
0: I didn't find that worked for me. (laughs)
1: It It was kind
0: of it was kind of like those those um, (laughs) those character defects just resurfaced. Um, Not as bad, you know. Certainly, I know that the the promises have come through in every aspect of my life. But how I deal with it is by a supporting her her sons. She has no relationship with her sons. She kicked both of them out when they were teenagers. I sponsor a woman who is a mother. And I worked through it personally through the, the 12 steps. When I did fourth and fifth step the first time I did go through and my daughter certainly was on my 8 step list and I made a nine step amends to her. She and I went to counseling together as well. And I feel as though I did certainly make amends for the wrongs that I did to her, but that doesn't take those wrongs away. You know, I don't still have that debilitating, shame around it Mm. Uh, because it is shameful um, especially I think for women when you have lost custody of your children or your child Um, you know society does have a shame about that but I remember raising my hand at a meeting and saying is are there any other women in, in AA who have lost the custody of their children and and I had to do that because I was so riddled with guilt And I was sober. So I was really feeling it. And Uh one I met other women that that had happened to as well. And I talked with them about it. And I've made living amends toward my daughter as well, throughout the years where I've treated her how I should have always treated her Mm. and reacted appropriately in, in situations, you know, and, and I would still be there for her today, if she were to get sober um but i've you know i've been there for her sons who have a lot of questions about it because they know that their mother is an alcoholic they've talked with me about my own alcoholism and my own recovery you know i i do have hope that perhaps she can get sober too
1: you know vicky i i love this phrase our greatest liabilities become our greatest assets and you're using what you've been through to help people first of all for you to say in this interview i'm so glad that you did that you raised your hand and asked the room Mm. if there are other women in here who have lost custody of their children. Mm -hmm. Willingness. Mm. That's huge. I know that I I would have been very nervous doing that. Were you nervous asking that question?
0: I was nervous, but um, shortly before there, a couple of months prior to that, I raised my hand and said, is there anyone else in here who just doesn't believe in God? And I got help with that. So I was like, oh, okay, that works for me. I Um,
1: like your style.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Some call it Northern. (laughs) I
1: think it's fantastic. So with our liabilities becoming our greatest assets, you definitely have this unique perspective that you can can share and relate with other young women. Is there anything that you would directly want to say to someone?
0: I would say, That there's no obstacle that cannot be overcome with openness, willingness, and honesty. It just takes reaching out to people. Nearly everything that I've ever gone through, I have been able to work through it with the help of another alcoholic whether that is an alcoholic that is sponsoring me or someone in my home group or a counselor. I went to in-person counseling uh, when I was a few years over to deal with childhood issues that I didn't talk about in the rooms. There were certain things that I felt like I needed to get help outside of, or the one-on-one, you know, with a counselor. And that was one of the ways that I worked through. And that was a spiritual thing as well. But that coupled with doing the steps Having a sponsor, having a regular uh, AA meetings that I went to and still go to, you know, there was nothing that I have found that was insurmountable. Um, And just being that willingness, I think, being willing to tell people instead of saying, when, when people say, how are you? Instead of saying, okay, I'm all right, I'm fine. You know, if someone in AA is asking you that, you have permission to say, you know, I'm dealing with this and I need help with this.
1: Being, oh, you have permission to say, you have to, you have permission to speak the truth instead of looking good and saying, I'm fine.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. I I did things like, um, my best friend, um, he and I are still best friends after 32 years. But when I was like six months sober, he and I went to a local detention center and he and I started an AA meeting and a bunch of people started, we, we did that meeting for several years and it was another way to make amends to my daughter as well.
2: So. You've got, what was it, 32
0: years? I have 31, 32 in January.
2: Okay. What is your week like as far as AA goes? How does AA come into play?
0: Well, AA touches my life actually every day because uh, every morning when I wake up, I have a couple of books that I read and I also keep a 12 and 12 in my purse. I have a pocket size 12 and 12 because I have um, people in AA who will call me throughout the week. And so I always make sure that I have my book there. My home group is on Monday nights and I do that in person and we do the 12 and 12. We go through the big book and we do a tradition, a third Monday of every month. I also do things like Friday night, I had phone watch, so I didn't get much sleep here Friday night. Mm. I also, on Tuesday nights, I have another meeting, which I go to on Zoom. I've been doing that for almost two years and it's my other home group. And then I usually meet with one of the women that I'm sponsoring sometime during the week. I talk with people on the phone, um, and then I will go to another meeting throughout the week. Uh, Since I'm retired, which uh, the promises came true for me, and so I was able to retire earlier than normal. Goodness
2: gracious, isn't that a miracle?
0: Well, you know, I've I've had a uh, largely successful relationship and marriage for 27 years, too. And Mm. that was, uh, you know, I was four years sober when uh, Michael and I started dating. So that helped as well. Um, But because I'm retired, I can go to a daytime meeting or an evening meeting or a Zoom meeting. So I feel like the life I have today, I owe to AA. So I owe it to give back to AA as well.
1: Isn't that a little too much AA? (laughs) <laughs> no, your your life is just it's, it's your life is shot through with AA in the right way. I love that. It's fantastic. I mean, it's just to go through my life and recovery is a part of it. Yes, you know, it's just that simple.
0: Well, I tell you, you know, I can be a little bit hard headed, as I said, and one time there was a few month period where. I didn't make AA a priority like I have always, except for this one short period of time. And I'm telling you, I mean, my life didn't go to pop, but my head did. And I learned some great lessons during that time. And it wasn't even, it was, you know, a few months. And so being plugged into AA, I know works for me. And I know people who got sober and then never came back to meetings. I know people go to meetings every day. That's the wonderful thing about this program, other than the fact that it's the only group I can think of that really wants everyone to succeed. Like I've never heard anyone say, I want him to drink. You know, we want everyone to succeed. So how can we not want to be part and be grateful? I'm eternally grateful for what I have. And really what I have is as a result of AA. I feel so lucky after the life I had until I was 30. And then I feel like I I woke up and I was like, oh, oh, wow, I feel reborn. (laughs) You know, that was it. Vicki,
2: I'm so glad that we got to know you today. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it. I always appreciate the opportunity for service.
1: Now, if we're gonna work together, you need to be perfectly honest. Tell me about your life. Well, I'm engaged in a major double custody battle. How's that? Well, my wife doesn't want me and my mother won't take me back. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.